The Bible, the Word of God, a living manuscript that gives life and brings light. The truth found in its pages serves as our guide when we're lost, our refuge in times of trouble, conviction in moments of weaknesses, courage and wisdom in the face of life circumstances, whatever they are. Listen, reading scripture isn't about fulfilling an obligation. It's not something to be checked off a to-do list. It's about spending time daily growing closer to the heart of God. As we do this, we get exactly what we need for our moments right now. This is our daily step. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. It's an honor for me to be here. Kent mentioned I'm originally from Alabama, but this is my church home. And so, man, what an honor and a blessing it is for me to to be able to be here, for Jeff to trust me during this time today to lead us in the Word. And so uh, we're so thankful that you're here. Also, welcome to those of you watching online. And uh, man, the last Sunday before school officially kind of kicks off this week, right? Moms and dads, you excited about that? Yeah, I thought so. Me too. Me too. It's hard to believe. I have a a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 6-year-old, and so going into 7th grade, 5th grade, and 1st grade, and it's weird because uh, as a dad, and I mean, my my parents told me this, your parents have told you this, people older than you have said uh, to you, the, the time goes by so fast. Wow, where did the time go? It just keeps clicking by, and it seems like year after year, time moves faster and faster. And so for me, it's really hard to believe that I've got a, a guy that's, that's in seventh grade, about to be, and about to be 13, a teenager. It's, it's weird. It's weird. Because I can remember when we were preparing for him to be born. I mean, uh, it, was, it was 2002. We lived in Alabama at the time, and we were so pumped about our, our new little guy that we we're going to bring into the world. So we did everything kind of right to prepare the way we read all these books and went to all the childbirth classes and man I thought I was you know a boss dad because I'd put together cribs and chairs and bookshelves and painted the nursery and all these different things and so I was really pumped about this little guy coming into the world and I was so excited because I heard my parents say story or tell me stories like uh, and things like the, the first time I saw you, you just you just melted my heart and so I was kind of expecting this emotional moment like that with my son when I was about to meet my son and so we're in the in the delivery room and the doctors and nurses say you know it, it's about time kind of one more push and you're gonna meet your son and so I, I'm, I'm prepared for this moment man and I'm thinking he's gonna gonna arrive in the world and it's gonna be beautiful and I'm gonna have this emotional connection this moment with my newborn son and and he's gonna to be cute and pink and cuddly and and have the baby smell like not the bad baby smell the good you know the baby like baby powder kind of smell and 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 it's going to be awesome and I'm just going to say love you son just going to melt my heart kind of moment and so one more push and you're going to meet your son and so here here's Connor arriving into the world and so I'm expecting this moment to be like it's going to be great but here's what I did in that moment It wasn't a great, emotional, oh, I love you, you're the apple of my eye kind of moment when my son, my firstborn, arrives into the world. Here's what I said. I said, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like I literally said the first words to my newborn son who's about to be 13 were, you are the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And he was, man. (laughs) He he was cone-headed and slimy and gray and ugh. It was bad was bad. 
But this, all this buildup for, for my newborn, firstborn son, and this moment to be perfect was just, just down the toilet right then, right? And it didn't get much better after that. I remember the first night they, they gave us the opportunity for him to either go to the nursery or to be in the room with us. And so if you're expecting or wanna have kids someday, all the parents who've had the kid in the room for the first night, unless you're weird, will, will say what I'm about to say. Always, always choose the nursery, right? Because, because you will never sleep again until they're out of your house, okay? And, but for me, that first night, I, we chose to have them in the, ha- in, the, in the room with us. And so I remember like he, I remember thinking he cries constantly like he won't shut up over and over and over all night. And I remember waking up, I'm sleeping over here and here's my wife and she was such a trooper and, and, and he just kept crying and it was weird cry. It wasn't like a normal cry, it was a weird, it sounded like a goat or something, it was weird. And, and, I, remember, and I remember him crying and waking me up for the 73rd time. And I remember, I literally did this. First night, after I've called him ugly, first night, I said, would you shut up, right? And, and, and then I'm thinking, they're not gonna let me take this little guy home. Like, they're gonna trust me with this life, I hope, but I'm not real sure, you know? Uh, and so, man, but those moments were difficult and, and, and it was weird and, and hard those first few days. But now, looking back on the last 13 years, I think things like, well, I've only got a few more family vacations with him while our family's all together. Or, well, I've got less time with him in our house than I've had so far with him. And the time just keeps clicking away. And, and here's what I know and what, I, what I'm realizing more and more every day, that sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in the minutia of life, kind of jump on the hamster wheel of life, and it keeps going and keeps moving, that we miss these amazing things about our family and, and moments around us that God's kind of in his common grace, his design to bring us joy. We get so caught up in the flow of life. And can I, can I meet my deadlines today? Can I get this kid to soccer practice or get meals prepared or, or whatever, all the things that we do in life that sometimes we miss these beautiful moments. But r- the reality is that the same thing is true in our lives spiritually, that sometimes we can get so fast flowing and rolling on the hamster wheel of life that sometimes we fail to pause and zoom out and go, God, what's the bigger picture of the story that you're telling not just in, in creation and in redemptive history and in the cosmos, Not just, God, what's your story of that, but what's your story of what you're doing right around me in in the United States and Tennessee? What's the story of what you're doing right around me in Franklin or Spring Hill or Brentwood or wherever you live? What's the story of what you are doing in my domains that I live and work and play? God, what's the story that you're telling in my life and in my family's life? Sometimes we get moving so fast in life that we we forget to stop and pause and zoom out and get the bigger picture. And so then what happens is our prayers begin reflecting kind of what's on our hearts, don't they? Prayers always reflect what's on your hearts. And so we begin praying for things that are really probably going to happen anyway. God, I just help me meet this deadline. God, help me get meals prepared on time. Oh, help me not to get a ticket while I pass that cop going 95 on, on the freeway. God, I mean, and we, we start praying for things that really honestly are going to kind of happen and fall into place anyway. But what if things were different And what if today we were to have the opportunity to stop, to press pause, to slow down from the hamster wheel of life and zoom out and go, God, God, what's the bigger picture that you're telling? 
the larger story that you're telling in my life? And how can I plug into it and be a part of it? Because when we do that, life will find greater joy and fulfillment and God will be more glorified in us than ever before. And so we're going to turn to Luke chapter 18 today. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and grab it. Maybe you don't have one. There's some in the back. You can grab one on your way out. If you want to jump now, you can go grab one now. That's our gift to you. Um, if, you uh, if you have your, your phone or device, you can find the scripture on there on the YouVersion app. It's going to be on the screens as well, so you can, you can follow along that way. Luke 18, uh, if you've been around Rolling Hills and are involved in our Daily Step reading plan, you know that that's the text for today. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you don't know what Daily Step is, it's just kind of a guided roadmap plan for you, for, for us, for our faith family, for reading through uh, Scripture together. We'll read the whole Bible over the course of a couple years. And so, man, you can find out uh, more about that. You log on to the Rolling Hills app. There's a button there for Daily Step. Go out in the Welcome Center, and uh, you can pick up a journal to help guide you through the Daily Step. It's a great way to, to kind of read along in Scripture. Luke 18 is our text today, and it's amazing because it gives us this opportunity to zoom out and look at, God, what's the story you're really telling in my life. So let's take a look at it. Luke 18 verse 1, it says, it's Jesus talking, and he says this, he says, and he told them a parable, well it's Luke talking about Jesus, Jesus is about to talk, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So Luke is telling us that Jesus is about to gather his disciples together and tell this story. Uh, th this, this, Jesus had a kind of a tendency to do that, right? He'd gather people together and he'd tell this normal sort of everyday life kind of story, but then he'd make this profound practical application of how they could apply it to their lives. It had this great spiritual meaning and that's what Jesus is about to do. And so Luke sort of, he, he doesn't always do this when he accounts for Jesus' parables, but in this one right out of the gate, he tells us what Jesus is going to do. He tells us the application of the text, of the story. So he kind of leaves the, the keys for the meaning of this text hanging on the front door for us right here. He says, this story that Jesus is about to tell is going to affect the way you pray. It's going to have a profound impact on the way you pray. So then he goes on. Jesus starts to tell the story in verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And so Jesus sets this story up by creating this, this, this crazy, almost ridiculous contrast of a judge and a widow. Now here's why that's kind of a ridiculous contrast. Not ridiculous in a bad way, just crazy. It's a huge contrast, distinct contrast. Here's why that's crazy. Because in that days, there were, there were these judges in every city, and I mean, much like our day today, and, and they would preside sort of over civic disputes, and people would come and say, uh, what, can you bring me justice? And they would determine to do it, yes or no. Not too indifferent, uh, or not too different from our day. Um, and, so, and so this widow uh, comes along, and, and widows in that day were, man, they, they were the epitome of weakness and desperation. And here's why. Because in that day, just to be a woman alone was incredibly difficult because woman, women outside of a relationship with their husband were not honored just in society and in culture. And so, in fact, most of the time, women were not even allowed to speak in court, right? Their, their pleas weren't even heard. And so here's this woman who's already, you know, uh, a woman, and so it was hard for her, but now her husband has died, and so she's the epitome of weakness and desperation, coming to this judge who is the epitome of power in that day. And Jesus says that he neither feared God or respected man. 
Now, that's a common phrase used in that day to describe maybe the worst of the worst people. And so that's, maybe now you see why this is such a crazy, distinct contrast. The epitome of weakness and desperation, the epitome of power, but he's also evil. And so you can kind of see her almost, you know, meekly kind of coming in to, to, to meet this judge. And so she comes and pleads over and over and over and over again. And so look at verse 4. For a while... He refused, but afterward, after she kept coming over and over, she persisted. Uh, For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, verse five, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. (laughs) That's almost an amusing line, and Jesus had a tendency to do that sometimes. He'd paint these amusing pictures with these these stories that he would tell. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, that, that phrase bothering me literally in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, is it's a boxing term. That literally means this guy's gonna hit me under the eye, and this girl, this widow, gonna hit me under the eye and give me a black eye. She keeps coming, she keeps pounding away at me, right? She keeps pounding away, and, and so I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down, <laughs> so that she doesn't beat me up, this guy saying, by her continual coming. Now, you know, you've all been there if you're parents, right? Or if you've been a child and had parents, you know that sometimes we can be so persistent with our, with our parents, or our kids can be so persistent with us that finally we as parents just go, okay, like, I give up, okay. I can remember times I, doing that with my, we laugh all the time when, when we're with my, my parents and we tell our kids a story of this time. I really wanted a basketball goal. I really wanted a basketball. I didn't have one. And so I kept, I was like this, man, I was pounding away at my dad. Please, 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 please. And finally he relented. Okay, okay, I'll get you a basketball goal, right? And so that's the picture of what's happening right here. She's wearing this powerful, this, this epitome of weakness lady is wearing this powerful judge down by her persistence. Well, then Luke goes on, verse six. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he gives justice to them speedily. I'm going to stop right there. He gives justice to them speedily. Now, what it seems like Jesus is saying here is that when we have a desire and a need in our hearts, when we have something going on that we keep bringing to God over and over and over, like a father, eventually God will relent and say, okay, you twisted my arm long enough, you kept coming at me and pounding away, okay, I'll give in, I'll relent, and I'll answer you, right? And so that's what it looks like is happening here when we just read this text on the surface. But when we dive in a little deeper, we see that that's not really the meaning of this text. We dive in a little deeper to the context, and we get to the heart of really what Jesus is saying and why he's telling us this story. Now, let me pause for just a second and say, I'm not saying at all, at all, that we should not, as followers of Jesus, persist in our prayers. We should, absolutely. We should take every need to God. There was this old hymn we used to sing when I was growing up and the words would say, take it to the Lord in prayer. Maybe you've heard that old, old hymn. And and so we certainly should, as followers of Jesus, persist in taking our deepest needs to God because, because God chooses to sovereignly accomplish his will through the prayers of his people. 
And so we should bring our needs over and over, pound away at God with our needs. Absolutely, we should. But if we go on in the second part of verse 8, we really see the point that Jesus is trying to make in this text that allows us to be able to zoom out and take a big picture look at our lives and connect our lives to something larger. So look what he says. Let me read all of verse 8 again. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, nevertheless. Now the next two phrases are profoundly important. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, when the Son of Man comes, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So, so what Jesus is doing here is he's stopping for just a second to zoom out and remind the disciples that he's talking to of the larger redemptive plan that he has in human creation and in the created order and in history. Jesus is zooming out to remind them of the story that he is telling and has been from everlasting to everlasting, of the story that he's telling in creation. And he says, when the Son of Man comes. See, if you go back to, to verse, uh, or chapter 17, really the second part of chapter 17, what you see is, you see that the, the disciples in that day thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. He was going to ascend to the Father, and then he was going to return and set up his kingdom. Right? That's what they thought. But now they're beginning to realize, in the second half of verse 17, uh, chapter 17, they're beginning to realize, wait, He's going to come indeed, but it's not going to be until some time has passed. It may not be in, in, in our, even in our lifetime, right? And so in verse 22 of chapter 17, what we see is, is Jesus saying to the disciples, like, there's going to be a day when you would wish that I would come right away because it's going to be challenging and difficult for you. It's going to be hard for you. But I'm going to come again, and I'm going to make everything right. I'm going to fix everything that has gone wrong, the, the stuff that's gone wrong that's, that's made it difficult for you. Now pause for just a second, because let me kind of give you a theological context. Since Jesus is zooming out to give them this larger story of what he's doing, let me kind of, kind of, kind of summarize that for you today. God created the world in Genesis chapter, when we see the second account in Genesis chapter 2, kind of the... Uh, Two accounts of the same thing that's happening. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. But in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. And in sin entering the world, everything broke. Everything fractured. What we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is this kind of seemingly melodic, rhythmic thing that's happening in creation. It's creation the way it was supposed to work. And we remember that God in Genesis 1 said, and it was good. And it was very good, right? This melodic rhythm of how life is supposed to work. Then sin entered the world, everything fractured, and it sent those fractures throughout the fabric of creation and throughout the, the, the fabric of our hearts. And so we know, you and I both know, it doesn't take long to look around us in the world to know that this world is broken. And you're broken and I'm broken, we are broken. And because of that, the disciples knew that too, Jesus is saying, but, but I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going I'm to fix what was broken. And then, and then, and then I'm going to come again one day and I'm going to ultimately, once and for all, completely make all things new and restore creation back to the way it was meant to work. Right? I'm going to do that someday. 
And so Jesus now, in reminding them that when the Son of Man comes, he's reminding them of that whole theological redemptive story that he has been about and is still about, by the way, from everlasting to everlasting. He will return and fix everything once and for all that's broken when he makes all things new. That's amazing. And so now, think of this story. them to persist in in the return of Christ, right? It's it's called, theologically, we would call it an eschatological prayer, right? Eschatology is like the study of end times. It's an eschatological prayer. Jesus is saying, pray for for, for me to return. Pray for me to return desperately. Keep persisting. Pray for me to once and for all finally accomplish my story in this world. Don't get caught up in the minutia of prayer on the hamster wheel of life. Help me not get a ticket. Help me to get this done. Help me to get that done. Bless the food. Bless this guy. Help Give me traveling mercies. Don't get caught up so much in that that you forget to zoom out and get the bigger picture of what I'm doing and pray desperately, desperately for the return of Christ. That's the story. That's what he's telling in this story. But he goes on and he gives us something that, that to take this big theological idea very, very practical. He gives us handles to the theological thoughts that we're getting in this text. So look what he says. He says in the second part, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find you, disciples, and generation after generation after generation, all the way down to us, will he find faith? The word could also be translated faithfulness. Will he find us being faithful on the earth to the mission that he's called us to? Now, pause. If you take that phrase, that's kind of the bookend on the back end of this story, but if you, you rewind back to verse one and find the bookend on the front end, of this story, what Jesus said is, I tell you these things so that you would pray and not lose heart. Telling you these things so that you would pray and not lose heart. Now let me tell you why I go back to that that first phrase. It's because of this. Because if you translate the phrase and not lose heart from the original Greek language, you could also translate it this way. And in fact, this is the only time, let me pause for what I was about to say, this is the only time Luke uses that word in anything he writes, Luke or the book of Acts, which he also wrote the only time. But Paul uses that word several times in his writings, and every time Paul used that word, it was translated what I'm about to say. He says, I tell you this, Jesus tells you this parable so that you will not grow weary and become a coward. So that you'll not grow weary and become a coward. Now why would he say that? Because he's not just reminding the disciples of the story that he's telling, this big theological principle, the story that he's telling from everlasting to everlasting. He is certainly telling them that, but now he's giving it handles by saying, look, you have a part in that story and what you are gonna be tempted to do is be a coward and retreat from your part in that mission, in the story that I'm telling. You'll have a tendency to retreat. So don't, (laughs) don't be a coward, don't retreat. Don't retreat. And God's people all throughout redemptive history have had that same tension. Will we run wholeheartedly, completely after the mission of God in the world, or will we retreat from the mission? 
Now, now let me just make sure we're all on the same page because some of you are new to church and you're just here kind of kicking the tires of rolling hills and checking out the God thing. Is this right for me? And, and, so, I, and so you may not understand all this. Let me just make sure we're all on the same page, okay? Here's our part, their part and our part in the mission of God. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? I, I came not for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. I came for the sinners to find the sinners, right? And then Jesus said this, he said, just as the Father has sent me, so to the disciples, so I'm sending you. And he said to Peter this, he said, he said, who do people say that I am? And Peter told him, you know, you're Christ, the son of the living God. And, and then Jesus said, awesome, that's right. I'm gonna call you Peter, and on, which means rock in Greek, Petros. And on this rock, I will build my church. I'll build my church. Now the word church that he uses there is a, is a word in the Greek language, the word is ekklesia. And that word was kind of stolen, hijacked from, from civic culture in that day, not to, to and, it, and it, here's what it didn't mean. It did not mean a gathering of people who would just come and watch a show and go, that was great today. It moved me emotionally, right? It, it wasn't that, it was, a, it was a word that was used to account for a gathering of people. In fact, it was a military term that would account for and describe a gathering of soldiers who would come together, get their marching orders from the general, and then go out and live it out in the world, right? On the battlefield. That's the mission. That's what church means. And so when we see the word church anywhere in the Bible, that's what it means. It's not an institution. It's not a building. It's not a gathering of a show that we can evaluate that was good or that wasn't good today. It's a gathering of soldiers who will then disperse, deploy into the world and accomplish the mission of the general. That's the church. And in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And what Jesus was doing in Acts chapter one, verse eight is he was telling the disciples, I'm about to form the church which he did in Acts chapter two. And the Holy Spirit's gonna come, and when he comes, he's empowering you, 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 the church, to accomplish the mission in the world. That's why the Holy Spirit lives within us, to accomplish that mission, right? And so when we see the word church, that is what we're talking about in scripture. Now, set that in context of what we're talking about here. Jesus says, I'm telling you all this because you have a tendency to become a coward. And it doesn't take long to look around us at churches and Christians who have become cowards when it comes to accomplishing the mission of taking the gospel to Jerusalem, which is our people like us in our region and where, where we live and work and play, and in our Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. It doesn't take long to look around us and see that people, that you and I even have a tendency to become a coward, to become weary, and get so caught up in the minutia of life that we forget the real mission that God has called us to as soldiers in an army, the church, right? And so the story of this text is, that the bottom line is, is really this question, will you retreat from the mission that God has called you and I to, or will you give Everything, everything for the sake of the mission. See, God's, God's people always throughout redemptive history have had a tendency to have a gravitational pull inward, to get just, man, just self-preservation, right? Just self-preservation. 
And we get so caught up in busyness in life that, we, that we're not necessarily cowards like we're afraid. Sometimes maybe we are to, to take the gospel uh, to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Sometimes we're afraid of that. But many times it's, it's not necessarily fear. It's just busyness that we get caught up in, right? And so we retreat from the mission. There's stories of that all throughout the Old Testament. You see in, in Numbers, uh, the, God's people had been rescued. Moses had led them out of captivity in Egypt, and now he's leading them to the promised land. And now they stand on the edge of the promised land in this city called Kadesh Barnea. And they stand at Kadesh Barnea, and in front of them is uh, the promise of what God was going to give them, and behind them was everything that they'd been delivered from. And they stand at Kadesh Barnea, and they said, hey, let's send some spies into the land to sort of check it out, and then come back and give a report, and we'll know what to do. And so 12 spies go into the land, the promised land, Canaan. They go into the promised land, they sort of get the lay of the land, they come back and they say, dude, this is crazy. Canaan is crazy, like it's treacherous. And the people there are so huge that I, well, there's no, they'll defeat us, there's no way. And so now they stand at Kadesh Barnea and they have this choice. Will we move forward in the mission of God together? Will we lock arms and move ahead as an army to accomplish the mission of God or will we retreat from the mission? And what we see if we continue to read that story is that they retreated from the mission and what happened as a result is then God expressed his wrath and his judgment on them and they wandered in the wilderness and Moses, who was leading the charge, never even got to see the promised land because of that. Fast forward several generations and you get to Judges, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And you see now the people have actually inherited the promised land. They're there, but God says, hey man, some idols have sprung up around the land and they've built these weird totem pole things called asterisks and I want you to go tear them down so that the glory of God can reign in the peoples who kind of li are living in the promised land. But they were scared, the people of God were scared. And they said, oh, those people, they won't like it. We go start tearing down their stuff. They won't like it. And so they have this choice once again, will we move forward in the mission of God, for the mission of God, or will we retreat from the mission? And they retreat from the mission. And so what we see is in the next couple of verses, or next couple of chapters, that God expresses his judgment on them. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout the Bible and throughout history beyond the pages of the Bible up till today. God's people have this choice. Will we move forward and risk everything for the sake of the mission? Or will we retreat from what God's called us to do into self-preservation and religion? And you and I have that same choice today. So you can live your life and I can live my life so caught up in the minutia of life, even the minutia of church life. I go in, I serve, I leave, I go do my Bible study, I come back, I do my daily step, I check that off, I come worship, I even raise my hands and it's awesome. I listen to Jeff and it's great and I go home and I get back on my hamster wheel and I keep doing my thing. We can do that or we can pause and we can zoom out and we can say, God, what do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell in and through me and my family? In the places, the domains, the world that you've placed me in. When Vanessa and I and our family lived in Murfreesboro um, several years ago, Connor, my oldest son, who's about to be 13, uh, played football in this little team called Black Blackman Blaze, little youth football league, Franklin Cowboys, and Blackman Blaze was our team. And so... Um, Connor played for this team, and several years before that, we had met on another team we were on. We met this guy named Jay. 
and Jay had a son that was Connor's age, and we got to be friends with Jay. And, uh, and so this particular year, uh, Connor had the choice, do I play on this team or this team? And, and I, so I said to Connor, I saw an opportunity, I said, man, here, here's an opportunity for us to, to ask the Lord where he wants us to be. And so we started praying, God, where, where do you want us to be and w- which team? And so we both felt like God wanted us to be on Jay's team. Jay was the coach. And, and so I really felt led to start investing in Jay. So I started invest, just becoming friends with Jay, started texting him, just weird game football stuff. And then we, then we started going to lunch together. And then we started talking about spiritual things. And then out of the blue one day, I was a pastor in a church over there. And he said this, he said, um, he said I think I'm going to come to church this weekend. I was like, Awesome. Uh, wow. I didn't even really invite him. You know, it was just, it was awesome. Out of the blues. Awesome. So he came, kept investing in Jay, kept investing in Jay. That was, uh, I think it was three, maybe four years ago now, several years ago. Kept investing in Jay. Well, not long after we moved here to, to this Williamson County, which was about a year ago, Jay texted me and he said, hey, I gave my heart to Christ. Sherry, his wife, gave her heart to Christ. Uh, Alex, their son, who's my son's age, gave his heart to Christ and we're all gonna be baptized at the church I was the pastor at. We'd love for you to come. Like, <laughs> I mean, I just get emotional. Like, I'm, I'm start weeping at this point. That's awesome, that's awesome. And so actually, two weeks ago, uh, the, my, who was my associate pastor there at that church, is now the pastor of that church in Murfreesboro, uh, it, he baptized Jay and his whole family that, that Sunday. Now, here's the deal. I had a choice in that moment. Listen, I, uh, before I even say what I'm about to say, so many times I have failed and blown it when it comes to this idea. But God in his grace allowed me to sort of live out his mission in that particular moment and, and with Jay. And so when I had the opportunity to choose to, to retreat from the mission and just play football and get caught up in the minutia of being a football dad and you know, coached a little bit and those things, or I could see that as an opportunity for me to live on mission for the kingdom to accomplish the larger story that God had created uh, me for and placed me where he had placed me, when he placed me. In this time in redemptive history, I could choose to accomplish that. And I, I did, I chose to do that. And now we see what God did in Jay's life. And we'll never know till heaven what God will do now through Jay and through Alex and through Sherry and through the people that they will impact for the kingdom. See, what would happen if we were to pause and zoom out long enough to recognize that God just hadn't placed you here to live the American dream, but that God has placed you here on purpose for you to be a missionary with the people around you? that whether you work for Nissan or some music publishing company or, or the school system or you're an accountant or whatever it is you do, what if you began to see your life not as just going to work every day to get a paycheck, but what if you began to see the days of your life as opportunities for you to live on mission for Jesus, to take the gospel to those people? What if you began to see your boss not as someone who's paying you to be an accountant, but as as someone who's paying you to stealthily infiltrate that particular place of business as a missionary for the kingdom? And wow, he pays you to do that. Wow. What if you began to see your life and your kids' sports not as a way to get your kids to the next level, right? I heard this stat the other day of the, the, the number of kids who will actually play, play high school football who will actually get to the pros. It was a ridiculous, like, it was, I can't remember the statistic, but it was crazy, ridiculous, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ever, and I never thought that was possible with my kids. I mean, they have my athletic, athletic ability, so there's no way. But, but, but we sometimes get so caught up in trying to make our kids the best at the best of whatever that we forget that that's not why we're there. It's not. We're there to live on mission. 
could we zoom out long enough to get the picture of really why God's placed us there? And students, as you start school next week, and parents, as you get involved in whatever you get involved of the ne- in the next school year, could you see yourself? What if you saw yourself approaching those particular domains on mission? On mission. Because here's kind of the end of this story. There are currently about uh, uh, 16,000 people groups in the world. And of those 16,000 people groups, about 3,000 of those people groups have never heard the gospel. We would call them unreached. They have little or no access to the gospel. 3,000 people groups. That equals about one and a half billion with a B people in our world. But see, what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14 is, once every uh, people group, every ethnos, every nation has heard the gospel, then the Son of Man will return. Then the Son of Man will return. Then, when the mission is accomplished. And so you and I, as believers, as the church, just like the disciples, have a part in ushering in full on the kingdom of God and his return by our obedience to the mission that he's called us to. You see that picture? That's the story of this parable. And so the question is, will you allow the mission of God to so permeate your life that your prayers are affected by it? that you're so emotionally caught up in the mission that God has called you to, that it, you're passionately on your knees praying for your, your boss or your friend or the kid on your, uh, the, the, uh, the adult, the parent on your kid's sports team. Would you pray that way? Would you be so passionate about it that you pray that way? Or will you retreat from the mission? Listen, my prayer for us as a faith family is that we would realize that Rolling Hills Community Church is an army on mission for Christ, not a gathering of people for a show, and that when we leave this place today, we will have been the church gathered, the army, the church gathered, but when we leave, we will be the church, the army, scattered on mission of the king in the battlefield that he's called you to and me to. That's my prayer for us, and that's the story of Luke 18. I pray that you and I live that out as we go today. Let me pray for us. God, thank you today that uh, you have called us to something that's bigger than ourselves. And we know that, that every uh, people group throughout the history of the world has been looking for that thing that's bigger than them to attach their lives to. And God, we thank you that we read the pages of your word and we can see what it is. And now today we have the choice of living it or not, embracing it or retreating from it. So God, may we be a faith family who does not retreat, but who passionately, passionately pursues your mission in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.